Hey guys, welcome to episode 24 of the True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We want to start off the show, as always, by thanking our listeners. You guys are amazing and we love bringing this show to you every other week. Thank you for all of your reviews and feedback. We love hearing from you. If you would like to donate to our Patreon page and get show transcripts and two free episodes right now on the Winchester Mystery House and the Mysterious Death of Dick Henson, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We also want to thank our sponsors at the top of the show. 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men, and Zola.com, an amazing online wedding registry that we are using for our upcoming wedding. Okay, so let's get into it. In today's episode, we are going to discuss the ruthless and heartless murders that plagued eastern Alabama in 2002. A group of killers were working their way down a list of families that were going to be targeted. But why these families? And how far down their list would these men get before they were stopped? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The story begins 16 years ago, on a brisk day in late January in Opelika, Alabama, when a 31-year-old mother of two, Katrina Ryan, is desperately driving towards the home of her parents. Katrina calls her mother every morning when she gets to work around 8 a.m. They also have the same heartwarming greeting when she asks her mother what she's doing and she never fails to respond, Oh, nothing, just having my coffee. But today was different. There was no response and no coffee to be had. Katrina tried calling her parents from 8 a.m. until lunchtime, around 12 p.m. When she received no answer, she asked her boss if she could leave early to check on her parents. He agrees to let her do so. And as Katrina approaches her parents' home, her anxiety is building. She feels that there is something wrong. Actually, she knows something's wrong. She just hopes she can get there in time. When she arrives at the home of her parents, Katrina sees that all of their cars are in the driveway. They are home. They should have answered her multiple phone calls and heard her desperate voicemails. She immediately goes to the back door, as this was used as a main door in their household, and she notices at first that the door is left open. As she gets closer, she realizes that it's splintered in the door jam area, and someone had broken the door in. As she enters the house, she stands in the kitchen, and she glances into the den. It is here that she sees her father laying face down on the floor, blood pooling in the lower back of his shirt and saturating the rug. Katrina runs to Thurman Ratliff, her loving father, and collapses next to him. She tries to wake him. Then her thoughts turn to her mother. Where was her mother? She looks around and sees no sign of Catherine Ratliff, so she runs down the hall screaming for her mother. She stops at the elderly couple's bedroom. Laying at the far side of the room, only the bottom half of her body seen past the furniture, she finds her mother. She is, just as her father was, covered in blood. Katrina turns to the hallway telephone and tries to call 911, but she realizes there's no dial tone. She runs back through the house and to her car 
and drives to the home of the nearest neighbor. She pounds on the door until she's let in. And all she can say is, someone killed mom and dad, call 911. And then she passes out. Could you imagine walking in on that scene? If that was me, I'd pass out too. I, I don't even know if I'd make it to the neighbor's house, to be completely know, honest with you. I know. Yeah. When Lee County detectives arrive at the crime scene, they immediately recognize this as a robbery. The house is a mess, as if it had been searched frantically for something. The ladder to the attic is pulled down, vents are left open, and things are thrown about the house. It appears that during the robbery, the couple was murdered. Thurman Ratliff had three gunshot wounds, one to the hand, one to his lower side, and a fatal shot to the back of the head. Down the hall, in the bedroom, Catherine had bruises on her body, four gunshot wounds. The wounds were found in her arm, her side, shoulder, and the same as her husband, a fatal shot to the head. Forensics determined many things by looking at the crime scene and the evidence found with the bodies. It was known that a 9mm weapon was used to perpetrate the crimes. However, it was clear that two separate weapons were used. Therefore, this leads investigators to think that at least two people were involved in this crime. It's pretty rare that someone will use two separate guns in a crime if it's just one person. On the exterior of the house, two separate boot prints were found in the mud. They led off the property, over a fence, and right to tire tracks. So this leads them to, to believe that maybe three people were involved. Right. This is like something like extremely staged. They yeah. Had somebody was, waiting for them to mm-hmm. pick them up and everything. They planned it. When Katrina is talking to police, she mentions that maybe the intruders were looking for money. She knew her parents kept large sum amount of cash in their home with them. Their kids always warned them about this, and they were nervous that they were going to get robbed one day. But the Ratliffs thought, we live in a small town of Opelika. Everyone knows everybody. Nothing's going to ever happen to us. Right. Unfortunately, she didn't know where the cash was or how much her parents had in the house. So she couldn't even tell them if anything was missing, if they do find the cash. The house was searched by police, and sure enough, the money was found. The Ratliffs had $87,000 kept in a canister in their bathroom that's crazy i'll tell you what though really quick my great aunt um i believe when she passed away she was 100 mm-hmm. pretty pretty close to 100 years old and uh, she didn't believe in the institution of banks no well most didn't and um, she's very she was she lived very like off the grid though and i remember when my me and my my father and i when we went to go see her she showed us her coffee can with all her money in it and she actually had a hole in the floorboard of the house. That's crazy. It was like maybe a, I don't know, maybe three, a two by two, maybe two, three by three hole with a little, like with a little door with a coffee can in there. And she had like $100,000 in a coffee can. That's insane. So it's just insane what people do sometimes, but I can understand. I couldn't even comprehend 80, having $87,000. I know, me too. <laughs> Whether it's in the bank or a coffee can, I'll take it anyway. Uh, so, after this murder, murders, the town was terrified. Um, it had to have been someone of their own, right? Because the person had to have knowledge that the cash was kept in the home. Like, you wouldn't, it was, the house is too isolated, and the town is too small. Like, there's no, like, major highway. Like, it's not like someone just came off the highway and decided, okay, we're going to hit this house. Right. Someone knew that they kept cash in the house, so it had to have been one of their own. So the town was terrified. Right. Like, what's going down here? When asked if her parents had any enemies, 
Katrina explained that they were really good people and that everyone loved them. Her father had been a hard worker. He was an independent dealer of snap-on tools, and he worked mostly with small shops and mechanics. Which are the best tools. Are they? Best tools. Okay. Doesn't get any better than snap-on, in my opinion. Okay. Like, they physically snap-on? Well, no, they don't physically snap. Well, I mean, they ha- they sell lots of tools with, like, attachments and uh, stuff. Is that the name of them? Snap-on tools, yeah. Oh. And, like, they're one of the only tool companies. Um, I thought they physically just, like... No, no, oh, okay. no. But a uh, uh, really quick fact, a uh, little little tidbit. They're the only, one of the only tool companies that actually, like, have big trucks that, like, go around and service people and ask them if they want to buy stuff on site. Oh, so, like, wow. it's like a big RV, but without the RV part of it, inside is just all tools, and they just cater to the people on site. Wow. So, they actually, like, come and deliver and, like, show you what they have. They're like anyway, traveling salesmen. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's probably what he did. That's probably what he did do, yeah. And they made a lot of money, those guys. Yeah. Great tools. And, well, good job. Maybe they'll be our next advertiser. You seem to do a really good job. Uh, I love I love snap-on <laughs> tools. My dad uses them, too. Wow. wow. Keep thinking, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so... In addition, Catherine also had many jobs, and she was a hard worker as well. She was a manager at a restaurant once, um, but left to care for her children. She also worked as a beautician. She usually worked uh, with older women and often had the clients come to her house. Everyone really just loved the rat lifts. Katrina added that unfortunately, the only danger that the couple ever faced was one that she introduced into their lives, her ex-husband. Ten years prior, Katrina was in an extremely abusive relationship, which she tried to leave several times. For years, Katrina remained with him because she wanted to maintain the appearances of a family for their child. However, at the age of 21, and after having to call the police to her house several times because she feared for her life, she finally is going to make the choice to leave her husband. But like most abusive men, he would not be that easy to leave. Katrina told Lee County investigator Van Jackson about the night he almost killed her. In August of 1981, Katrina was leaving work when her husband at the time stopped her in the parking lot. He was visibly drunk and holding a long hunting knife. He forced her into her own car and made her drive out to a remote area. He then forced her out of the car and bound her arms and legs and gagged her mouth. He then proceeded to beat, rape, and torture her for two hours. Once he felt he was done, he untied her and said, Go, get out of here. She then ran back to her car, which still had the keys in the ignition, and she drove as fast as she could right to the police station. That's like a scene out of a movie. That's insane. I know. You know what? That reminds me of that movie Enough with Jennifer, uh, with um, J-Lo, except the whole rape and torture part. But... Yeah, that doesn't really happen. No, no. She's... No, but anyway. No, it's definitely um, a traumatic experience that she's lucky that she survived. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, well, after that, when, after she goes to the police station, the police immediately start looking for her husband at the time, her future ex-husband. But he was on the run, and it took them two weeks to find him. Wow. While he was on the run, he called Katrina's house. She was still living with her parents and would threaten to kill her and her parents. So he would call them and say, I'm going to kill you. And then if her dad would pick up, I'm going to kill you. So she remembered this, right? Wow. And when he was eventually captured by law enforcement, he took a plea deal with the district attorney. He pled guilty to second degree kidnapping and they 
they took the rape charge off the table. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? I wonder why. Uh, I think they wanted to just get the conviction. They didn't want to have to go through the trial of it. You don't want to put the victim on the stand. So they kind of want to try and push for a plea deal for that one. But it just means less time. Fantastic. Yeah. So Katrina did not know where her ex-husband was. But he was the only person she could think of when police asked her the question that everyone who that everyone who lost loses a loved one in that manner hears like who wanted to hurt them. Right. She, he's the only person she could have thought of. But Katrina's ex-husband had an airtight alibi. He was in prison on another charge about 100 miles away from the crime. Police then looked into all violent offenders that lived within 50 mile radius of the crime scene. None were considered suspects. That left investigators with nothing to go on. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break to tell you about our first sponsor today. We're going to talk to you about hymns. We're also going to talk about a little bit of a sensitive topic right now. Uh, John's hairline. Okay, not cool. <laughs> and the fact that it's getting further and further back every year. But we found a great solution for hymns.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. I never really wanted to go to the doctor about my hair loss because it was embarrassing. And you know, guys, we don't like to go to the doctor for anything. But Hims was able to connect me with a real doctor who gave me medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. I also learned that 66% of men lose their hair by 35 and that it is better to act now when I first notice the hair loss rather than once it's already gone. Please, guys, don't wait too long. You don't want to wait. How will you feel a year from now if it's business as usual up there? Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. With Hims, there is no snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Only prescriptions backed by science. Well-known generic equivalents to name brand subscriptions are prescribed. There's no waiting room. It's quick and easy. Just a few quick questions and the doctor will review and prescribe you and also ship to your door exactly what you need to be feeling yourself again. Hims is offering our listeners an amazing deal. This is something that would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. Our listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today, while supplies last. See website for full details. For this deal, go to hymns.com slash TCC. Again, that is F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash TCC. Okay, back to our show. A few weeks later, on the night of February 17th, 2002, 54-year-old Forrest Butch Boyer, love it, he's named Forrest. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. That's a history teacher's uh, favorite movie, just so you guys know. (laughs) Forrest Butch Boyer was helping his son get ready for school the next day in Phoenix City, Alabama. Now, Phoenix City is in Russell County. And Opelika is in Lee County. And Russell County is just north of Lee County, but they are um, they share a border, the okay. two counties. Butch was the owner of a used car sales lot, and he was a single father to his son, Brett, who was 12 years old. Butch worked really hard to give his son a good life. He had a beautiful house with an in-ground swimming pool, every kid's dream. And he was paying high tuition to send Brett to private school. At 10 p.m., As he was putting his son's clothes out for school the next day, adorable, he gets a knock at his door. This was odd because it's 10 p.m. on a Sunday. No one ever stops by this late. 
There were two men at the door, police officers wearing narcotics hats, shirts, and badges. They told Butch that they had a warrant for his arrest and wanted to search his house. Butch kept telling them that this must be a mistake because he doesn't do any drugs. I think I would freak out if that happened to oh, me. Oh, absolutely. The every worst case scenario through my mind. And it's like, if, you, if you're a citizen who's not doing anything wrong, it's hard because you trust in it. Right? right, of course. And when you feel like it failed you, I mean, it's... Yeah, and you're just it's like even that much worse. <laughs> well, you're just like everything's going to be okay because I didn't yeah. do anything wrong. It's exactly. just a misunderstanding. So let me let them in and do the right thing. Right. Because I'm clean. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. You have nothing to hide. As the two men are arresting him and putting handcuffs on him, he's insisting that he did not do anything wrong. Once the two officers get Butch into their white Crown Victoria with tinted windows, well, that's like kind of legit too. Like they have an unmarked police car. That right. would make me be like, okay, this is real. It's kind of scary. So as they put him into the car, he asked them, what about my son? The two men look at each other, and Butch thought to himself, this is weird. How do they not know I have a child in the house? If police are coming in, to, they have a warrant to search my house. They gotta know a kid's there. They have to know a minor's present. I mean, do they? Well, you definitely know all the residents of the home. I mean, I guess so. Of course. I mean, how would you not? I mean, but if they're like, but if they're narcotics undercover agents when you obtain a warrant you have to know the residents of of all the residents of the home i guess you're right yeah Yeah, no you're right so how do they not know i have a child wouldn't that make because i have to also think if they are narcotics officers a a minor being present in the home where there's drugs located makes it a bigger offense that's true so that's true because that's the the welfare of a child right all that other bs you're gonna say yeah i was gonna say bullshit yep The next thing he knows, they go back into the house and they come out with Brett, who's in handcuffs as well. 12 years old. A little weird. So while the two men are driving with Butch and Brett handcuffed in the car, they begin questioning Butch about any money that he might have in his house. As they drive past the police station, Butch realizes something is very wrong with this situation. The two men in the supposed unmarked police car drive Butch and Brett out to a construction zone the site where US-431 is being built, just outside of town. Butch and his son are taken out of the car and questioned at gunpoint. The men ask Butch about the safe that he has in his house and where the money is. They kept specifically asking, where is your $100,000? Butch responded that he only had about forty dollars in a box in his house, but he has more in the bank and he could get it for them if they wanted him to. The two men took Butch and his son back to the house where Butch got the money for them out of a box in his closet. The men kept insisting that he has more, but he doesn't. While the two men are searching, they find a 38 stub-nosed revolver that wasn't even Butch's. It was actually his housekeeper's. He didn't know that it was being hidden in his house. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I think it's crazy that they drove him out to a site to question him but then brought him back. It's kind of weird, right? Like, why wouldn't they just well, get him handcuffed yeah. and ask and question him in the house? Probably two reasons. One, they didn't want to draw attention to possible neighbors, maybe. No, but this is super attention. You're driving back and forth. Right, but I don't know. I, I well, It's uh, very strange. Well, the other thing I was just going to say was uh, it's possible it was like a scare tactic. Let me take you to this place. Yeah, look what to I'm interrogate willing you. to do. Look what I'm willing to do to you. Yeah. Um, give me the fucking money. <laughs> you know? Well, when the men felt like they were getting nowhere with Butch, they drive him and Brett out to the construction site again. This time, however, they make them walk even further. This time, 
they approached a very large and deep hole. It was a pre-dug grave. Butch started pleading for his son. He kept saying, please, I'll give you anything you want, anything, just let my son go. Brett, terrified, speaks for the first time. Please don't hurt my dad. Please don't hurt my dad. But one of the men walks up behind Butch and slices his throat from ear to ear. Brett starts screaming for his father. The assailant who's responsible for cutting Butch's throat yelled at the other man. I did this one. Now you have to do one. That's when the second man shoots Brett in the head. But Brett doesn't die. He's still on the ground, in the dirt, gasping for breath. The man that ruthlessly shot him in the head then says, the little motherfucker won't die, as he shoots him in the head one more time. As Butch lies on his hands and knees, holding his throat, he watches crying as they throw his son's body into the grave. The first man then pulls Butch up again and slits his throat for a second time, for good measure and throws his body down on top of his son's. The men reach down and grab Butch's keys, cover the body with lime, and fill in the hole. It seems they're returning to the house to look for that money. But Butch Boyer wasn't dead. He had felt it as his body fell on top of his 12-year-old son's. He had felt the men pouring lime on top of him. He had felt the thick clay-like mud caving in on him but he also heard the men drive away. And when he did, he clawed his way out of the unmarked grave. And with the throat slit twice, he pulled his son Brett out of the grave and tried to resuscitate him. Once Butch realized he could not help his son any longer, he knew that if he wanted to survive, he has to make it to the road. Butch crawls a quarter of a mile on his hands and knees through the tall grass and brambles and finally makes it to the highway. He begins to stand and a motorist passes by. The man stops to try and help him. He explains what happens and asks the man to call 911. He does. That's incredible. It's incredible. I can't believe that he survived after having his throat cut twice from ear to ear. I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's such a tragic story. I mean, his son and him as well. I I know. Well, he's still holding on to hope that his son's alive. He just wants to get help. That's crazy. I can't believe that. So as the responding officer pulls up, he turns on his dashboard camera, as is protocol for, for such a strange call. I mean, they didn't know if it was not real or if they didn't get the full story. It's a little bizarre. Right. So the view that we see on the dashboard camera is that of a man standing, holding his throat, with blood soaked into his shirt like a deep red half moon. The officer, once he realizes that the call was no joke, runs back to his patrol vehicle to call in for backup because really he thought the call was a joke or maybe misunderstood by the motorist. What we're going to do right now is we're going to play you the audio from the dashboard cam. Hello, 1021. Okay, sir, you got any idea what your name is? Come here. The ambulance is here, sir. Hold on. Right there. 15. 15, Russell County. Have uh, a supervisor call me at 575-0867. 575-0867. Okay, hold on, sir, hold on. All right, all right, all right, all right. Hold on, sir, hold on. Okay, ambulance is here. Oh, 
give up one first. All right, all right, all right, all right. All right. All right, sir, hold on real quick. What's your name? What's your name? Butch. Butch what? Boyer. Spell it. What's your name, sir? I mean, what's your, what's your birthday? Uh, 3247. Okay, he said his son's been shot three times down there, been buried. We got to go, we got to take him down there. Okay, what can we do with him? Where, uh, where is it? Is what? Son? Down here. He's cut bad. I, I got his grave all ago. Who shot you? Who did this? So the officer, the whole time, what you're hearing is Butch Boyer is basically trying to say, my son's down there, my son's down there, we got to help him. And obviously the officer's just trying to get some questions answered, but it's just so crazy that he, everything that happened to him, and he's just standing, walking, like this man is a survivor. Yeah. Like we've never seen before. I mean, that's, that's, that is... um... And he's still only concerned about his son. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is uh, courage... That is an example of just pure adrenaline running. Yeah. That is uh, – it's just unreal. These are things you hear about like when like a lady, uh, her kid's trapped in a car and like she flips it it and shit. It's insane. But I will say this. This officer, I mean we got to give him credit too. This is is an officer that thinks this is like a joke or it's mistaken like the call. Right, but responds so quickly. He responds so quickly and like – even though it's annoying to, uh, for us to hear, like, he's asking questions, but he needs to ask these questions. They're important. And you can tell that he's frazzled. Like, he is... Trying to keep trying his Trying to keep his composure. Yes, exactly. You could just tell in his voice. I mean, he's shaky. Um, mm-hmm. You could just tell that, like, he's just so... He just can't believe that he's out there right now with this right. guy. Because the, the officer actually states that as Boyer is speaking with him, the only thing that's keeping his neck together and his Adam's apple from falling out is the fact that he's holding his neck and that he couldn't stop looking at the wound. Like, it all, said, But it does also look like he has something covering it. I think maybe maybe the motorist might have put something on his yeah, neck. Yeah, but he's, yeah, hol- he's holding yeah, it together. Yeah, he's holding it with his hands. The officer says, it's a hard sight to see. And I think about finding Boyer every time I pass this section of the road that he was picked up on. Boyer was, at this point, sitting at the edge of the ambulance. However, he was refusing medical services until police and paramedics went to look for and check on his son. They do. They find Brett where his father had pulled him out of the makeshift grave, with multiple gunshot wounds to the head. Brett is hooked up to a heart monitor. Paramedics wanted to make sure that they would be able to capture even the faintest of heartbeats. However, all they saw was a flat line. Brett Boyer, the 12-year-old sixth grader that had just hours prior been getting ready for school the next day, was dead. Butch Boyer was hysterical. It took paramedics a while to calm him down. What finally made Boyer stop was one paramedic who said, Mr. Boyer, if you do not allow us to work on you, you'll never be able to get the men who did this to you and your son. Boyer finally laid down, and the ambulance rushed him to the hospital. Before Boyer went into surgery, police got as much information out of him as they could. He told law enforcement that the men were driving a white Crown Victoria with tinted windows. They also took his keys, so most likely, they were headed back to the house to look for the cash that they thought he had. After having the Boyer house under surveillance for 30 minutes, they see a white Crown Victoria approach the neighborhood. They pull the car over and ask the suspects to step out of the vehicle. His name was Michael Carruth, a 43-year-old bail bondsman. On him, he had a large amount of cash and what appeared to be blood 
on his white sneakers and the pant leg of his jeans. But most importantly, he had Butch Boyer's keys. Carruth was brought in for questioning to the Russell County Sheriff's Department. But the entire time he kept his composure. He was cold, emotionless, and was maintaining that he did nothing wrong and denies all involvement. Upon further inspection of the vehicle, handcuffs, shackles, and a hat was found. On the hat was the word narcotics. Wow. Yeah. So those are a lot of charges there. Yeah. I mean, you're impersonating an officer for one. Right. You, you, you are pretty much, you killed a kid. Mm-hmm. And you can get pinned to all of that, of course. He's there's going to like... be a lot of charges. <laughs> Investigators call in District Attorney Kenneth Davis. They walk into the interrogation room and tell Carruth about what was found in his car and the blood samples and that the blood samples were sent out for testing. Davis asks him, are you sure there isn't anything else you want to tell us? Carruth continued to deny everything because to him, everything was good. He knows what happened that night, and he knows that there was no witness alive that would tie him to the crimes that he committed. That is when investigators chose to play their cards. And they said, Mike, we got bad news for you. Butch Boyer's alive. The detectives in the room reported that all the blood drained from Carruth's face. However, he still maintained his innocence. But there's one more thing that Carruth didn't know. Down the hallway, his accomplice was being interrogated as well. Okay, so let's take a second break to talk a little bit about our second sponsor, Zola. Zola is the wedding registry company that will do anything for love. They are reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moments in a couple's lives even happier. From engagement to wedding and decorating your first home, Zola is there. They combine compassionate customer service with modern tools and technology, all in the service of love. We decided to choose Zola and join 300,000 other couples because it's free, easy to use, and it's really fun. We were able to personalize our registry with photos and notes about why we chose certain gifts, funds, and events. Zola Registry has everything you love about your favorite department store, plus things like honeymoon funds, fitness classes, and wine subscriptions, and so much more. We were able to make our registry so unique to us, and we love what it has become. And the friendly customer service representatives go above and beyond to help us and our family members out. Not only does the team at Zola make it easy, but the website's so easy to navigate and use. And it's so convenient that we can sit in our comfy clothes down on the couch and plan out and discuss what we want without a pushy store representative around us. It's perfect. Zola also has a free set of wedding planning tools, including free wedding website, customizable checklist, and a guest list manager. It allows the couples to automatically integrate their Zola wedding website so guests can seamlessly shop and get all the details they need in one place. All of the tools can be managed from Zola's wedding app for the iPhone and Android. Zola is offering our listeners and their friends and family a $50 credit towards their registries by going to zola.com tcc. Again, that is Z-O-L-A dot com slash T-C-C for a $50 credit towards your registry. Okay, back to the show.
It did not take surveillance to catch this man, however. Butch Boyer had told them who the second man was. Finally clicked in his mind as he was pulling his son out of the grave who that guy was. His name was Jimmy Brooks Jr. Boyer knew him because he owned a used car lot. And Brooks' father, Jimmy Brooks Sr., was a repo man that he used. Jimmy Brooks Jr. would help his father on these jobs. So there's the connection. That's the connection. Less than 12 hours after the crime, Brooks was arrested. When police went to arrest him in his small two-room house in the rundown part of town, they found him next to a burn pile. It's very Stephen Avery. (laughs) Uh, Which appeared to have clothing in the burn pile. Within the house, they found large amounts of marijuana and cash. What Brooks seemed most concerned about was his girlfriend. He didn't want her to get tied up in any of this. So for her immunity, he decided to talk to police. That's their lucky day. He's such a great man protecting his girlfriend. What a guy. What a guy. (laughs) Brooks told investigators that a few months prior, he had gotten himself arrested. Carruth was the one who had posted the bail for him at the pleading of his family. They didn't have any money to put down. The bond was for $35,000, but he and his family had no money to pay Carruth back. And Carruth was really starting to ask for it. In his confession, Brooks stated the following. It's not the best English. I wasn't able to pay Mike Carruth, all right? It had been like maybe three months went down the road and he comes up to me and said like, Jimmy, I need you to start paying me now. If you don't, I'm going to have to lock you back up. I says, man, look, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can right now. And he says, well, I can work something else up if you get some money able to do that for you. Hmm. So now Brooks is in a situation where he feels like he has to do whatever Carruth asks him to do. At first, what he asks seems harmless. Well, it's at least not a violent crime. He told him what he wanted to do was start an underground hydroponic marijuana facility. But the problem was that they needed a lot of capital to start the operation. So Carruth asked Brooks if he knew anyone who kept a lot of cash in their home. Brooks said he remembered that when he did a job with his father for Mr. Boyer, they had to stop at his house for payment. Boyer pulled the money out of his room to pay the two in cash. When Brooks's father joked with him about having so much cash on site, he said that Boyer had said something like, he's got 100000 in the house. Ah, that's why they kept okay, asking so for they, it. Right. It seemed that Brooks was trying to establish that the plan was just to leave Boyer and his son at the construction site. However, investigators weren't buying it. The grave was already dug when the two were forced out to the location. Brooks also tells investigators that Carruth was the one who slit Butch's throat and that he was the one who shot Brett. He said, the boy was just looking up at me. He was just standing there and I shot him. Investigators knowing what Brooks really said at the site weren't liking that Brooks wasn't telling them all of these half-truths. Investigators were wrapping up and Brooks could tell that they weren't happy. Before they could leave... He says, wait, I've got more information for you. Remember that couple that got shot in Opelika? I know who did that. Brooks stated that it was him who did the Ratliff murder and robbery, and that Carruth had planned it. In fact, Carruth and Brooks had a very long list of families that kept cash in their homes. 
The plan was to hit the mall. It was Brooks who had told Carruth about Ratliff's... It was him who told Carruth about the Ratliffs as well. Brooks knew the elderly couple kept cash in their home because he was told so by the son of the Ratliffs, whom Brooks had worked for for a short period of time. So Brooks is the connection to both of these families. Right. That's how they know that they have money. Right. Right. But he had another interesting piece of information. There was a third man involved in the Ratliff murders. His name was James Gary. Gary was in the same situation as Brooks was. He had been arrested on drug charges in Russell County and could not pay for his bail. However, it was posted by Michael Carruth. This was actually the third time that he had posted bail for him. And at this point, Gary owed Carruth a lot of money. Carruth told Gary that he just needs to help him with his business plan, and over time his debt would be forgiven. So he's getting these men who are down on their luck in this situation where they really can't refuse him because they don't want to go to jail. You're right, exactly. The police ask Brooks to explain what happened to the Ratliffs. And he says, on the night of January 29th, 2002, Carruth picked up Gary and Brooks and drove them out to the Ratliff house. He gave them specific instructions on what to do and dropped them off near the home of the couple. Gary and Brooks went to the back door and kicked it in. Mr. Ratliff was sitting in his chair in the den and was caught off guard. They ask him where the cash was in the house. And he responds that he doesn't know what... When he responds that he doesn't know what they're talking about, they shoot him. But as they try to shoot him, he holds up his hand. And that's how he gets shot in the hand. He immediately falls to the floor and is held at gunpoint by Gary. At this point, Mrs. Ratliff tried to run down the hall to escape the two men. Brooks chases her into the couple's bedroom. Brooks and Catherine Ratliff get into a physical fight. As this was happening, Brooks was getting more and more angry, and he kept demanding the money. At some point, she stops fighting with him and begins to pray. This is when she's shot in the head. Obviously, we know from the physical evidence that this isn't the whole story. As she has a gunshot wound to her right, her right arm, her side, her shoulder, and her head, as well as bruises all over her body. So he didn't just shoot her once in the head. He's, he, oh, he's got a little bit of a selective memory when it comes to not implementing himself as much as I mean, if the bru- evidence shows. Right. So if there's a bruise on her body, I mean, she's probably beaten. Yeah, they definitely got into a physical fight. He's not denying that, but he's saying he only shot her once. She got four gunshot wounds. Yeah, exactly. After he comes out of the bedroom, he finds Gary searching for the money throughout the house. Mr. Ratliff is still laying on the floor. So Brooks demands that Gary shoot Mr. Ratliff again. And he does so, but he shoots him in the lower back. So Gary shoots Ratliff in the lower back. Brooks gets a little upset about this because the man's still not dead. So Brooks walks over and shoots him in the back of the head. Brooks claims that they finally found $25,000 in an air conditioning vent. Later, Gary would claim that that amount is $30,000. Using the walkie-talkies that Carruth provided them with, they contact him and tell him that they're done and they're ready to be picked up. They walk out the back door and climb the fence and climb into Carruth's pickup truck, just as the footprint showed us. So his story, although he's not being truthful about how many times he shot the woman, his story aligns with the physical evidence. Right, and everything they found on, yeah. on the scene. Yep. Carruth, however, thought he was going to beat the charges still, even with the pile of evidence put forth against him. But the state of Alabama had other plans. Two days after his arrest, he was indicted on four counts of capital murder, kidnapping, and robbery. 
The district attorney was very excited about all the evidence that they had against Carruth. However, they wanted evidence that was physically going to link him to the Boyer crime scene as he hadn't committed the crime with the Ratliffs. But if they can tie Carruth to the Boyer scene, then by association with Brooks, they can tie him to the Ratliff scene as well. Davis will finally get his physical evidence when the results come back from the DNA test on the blood that was found on Carruth's shoes and jeans. The blood on both were a match for Boyer. Butch Boyer. In September of 2003, Michael Carruth goes to trial. It is clear that throughout the trial, he's got no remorse for what he did. On October 9, 2003, Carruth was found guilty on all counts. He was sentenced to death. Butch Boyer attended every day of the trial. Could you imagine listening to that? That would be hard. But I think what gets someone through that, especially as a parent, is that at least there's justice. And especially in, in the state of Alabama, I'm death penalty. Death penalty. So I'm sure that he He wanted to make sure that exactly, happened. Exactly. Exactly. Brooks faced the same charges in court the same month that Michael Carruth was sentenced. During his trial, Brooks was very combative and acted very aggressively with the media, and it took jurors just 30 minutes to find him guilty of all charges. And just like Carruth, he was given the death penalty, and the two men still currently are on death row. James Gary had his trial in August of 2005, as he had to face warrants for other charges prior to the ones given to him in this case. Gary is found guilty of capital murder and given the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. His role was in one of the two. two. So whereas the other two men were facing the four counts of capital murder, he was facing two. And he also had the, the robbery because the kidnapping was off the table because the kidnapping only took place in the Boyer case. Right. So he had a little bit of less charges, plus the manipulation of Carruth to Gary Probably saved them was the de- higher. Yeah. yeah, the fact that Brooks was the one who brought the Ratliffs and the Boyers to Carruth is what gave him the death penalty as well. Right. Even though Carruth was the ringleader, they're both equally as responsible. I'm just glad these people, I mean, that <laughs> the kid got justice and everyone yeah. got justice, actually. I mean, that's... Well, yeah, because Gary was found guilty of capital murder and given life without the possibility of parole. So he's never going to see the outside worlds because on top of that, he still got time for his other yeah, he's, charges. He's, he's so done. he's in jail for the rest he's of his life. <laughs> in all cases, the prosecution drove home one single idea. These men, besides Gary, Gary did show remorse in his trial, but Brooks and Carruth, nothing, no remorse, no guilt. These were, hardened criminals they're evil they they were evil people to uh, to and, do these and acts the scariest thing that the prosecutor is going to say is this they would have worked their way down that list they had a list of 13 families they had no problem murdering the ratliffs and no problem murdering the boyers they would have killed 13 families easily 11 more easily right with no rem- they did not feel bad whatsoever all those people would have died if Butch Boyer didn't have that survival instinct. I mean, if he didn't live, they all would have died. Yeah, and it's easy. It's it's very or a possible majority that of them. 
another family could have been next. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that, if anything, he's like the, uh, the unsung hero in all of this. Oh, 100%. You know? Because, I mean, you have to think, the more you get away with it, the more it builds your confidence in doing it. So getting away with the Ratliff murder gave them the confidence to do the Boyer one. Right, and if they would have got away with the Boyer one and killed right. both father and It would have only gotten worse. It would have just gotten worse, absolutely. Right. Butch Boyer has never publicly talked about the events that took place that night, nor has he spoken about the trials or the sentencing of the men. According to the assistant headmaster of the private school that Brett attended, Boyer visits the school often. She said that it helps him heal, and in turn, it helps the school and the teachers heal as well. In 2004, the school's multi-purpose building, it's kind of like a gym and activity center, was dedicated to Brett. They remember him with a picture and a plaque that reads, The light in his face will forever shine on ours. His spirit will always live with us. The assistant headmaster states, Every kid that walks into the gym knows him. It has been a phenomenal way to keep his memory alive. So much of what goes into this gym can be attributed to his father, Butch, who comes back every year to visit us. He walks the hallways where Brett walked. Russell County Sheriff states that Butch always talks about his son, the things he wished he could have done, had grown up, and watched him do. Very sad. Butch also makes many scholarship contributions to the school for current students, never forgetting that the day his never forgetting that the day his son was supposed to graduate sixth grade, there was an empty chair with a rose and a folded up gown on it, set up for the boy that today would have been twenty six. That's so it's sad. actually sad. That and took you know, me. That was so hard not yeah, to cry. Really. I know, and you know what? It's like it's crazy because like he he would be my age right now. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's sad. You know, you know, that it just gets taken out for no reason. Yeah. Because that was all the money. They had nothing left. That was and it. And that guy worked hard, too. You know, it wasn't like, you know, right. he was doing something wrong. or A single father trying single to take father. care of his son. Yeah. And now he's alone. It's yeah, sad. it is sad. And he refuses to talk about it. Well, if I was the father, I wouldn't want to talk about, talk about it either. either. No. <laughs> But I'm glad he went to that trial every day and saw that guy. Absolutely. I mean, he got justice. Knowing that those two men are going to die probably makes him feel like there is justice. I mean, at least the men were caught and that nobody else had to die. Right. I mean, I I think that at the end of the day, as a father, you know, know, I don't think he'll ever fully get justice. No, because he doesn't have a son. And he doesn't have a son with him. But at least the people who did this are gone for good. Yeah. They are gone for good. And the third guy, Gary. They'll never hurt anyone he'll, again. He'll never get out. He'll never no. get out. He'll die there. And the other two are on death row, and they deserve it. Yeah. Um, that's all I have to say about that. I know, <laughs> I know guys. That was an emotional one. Yeah. Um, next week, we have a heavy hitter. So we are not going to reveal what it is. But uh, on the Patreon page, we'll definitely give hints. So hopefully you guys can figure out what we're doing. We just put an episode, another episode up on the Patreon page about Dick Henson. Yep. So if you want, you can donate to patreon.com slash true crime couple to get that episode and or help us out in any way possible. That would be great. And 
We again want to thank our sponsors, 4hymns.com and Zola.com for their support. And we want to thank you for listening, contributing, and liking everything we do. We can't say it enough. The feedback, the positivity, it's overwhelming. And we thank you guys. You guys are the best. Really, thank you so much. Making all our dreams come true over here. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.